we recommend that all first home buyers use a mortgage broker. In this episode, we're going to find out the optimum time to start working with one and what the benefits are of doing this early on in your home buying journey. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today, we're talking about why it's a good idea to find a good mortgage broker to work with well before you think you've saved enough money to get into the property market. And in order to do that, we've actually got a guest. Now, you know, we are fans of using a broker. So today we've invited one to join us and explain the first home buying process from a lending point of view and find out how a good broker might be able to even help you buy a home sooner than you expected. Our guest today is Hung Choi. He is the founder and director of Strategic Brokers in Sydney and is a highly qualified mortgage advisor. He tells us that he has been working with first-time buyers for 12 years now. So thank you so much for joining us today, Hung. We want to get some real juice out of you. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for having us, Megan. Thanks for having us, Veronica. Tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing with first-time buyers. Yeah, so I I became a mortgage broker close to 12 years ago. It was uh, just after the GFC, probably one of the hardest times. For anyone to buy a property, I guess there's a lot of uh, doubt in everyone's minds during the time we just came through a financial crisis, um, and you know the government started you know putting out all of these different schemes and things like that just to try to get people into homes once again. So the market was really tough. Credit policy was really easy back then um, compared to today's environment. Today's environment, you know, they they've sensitized everything. They're making sure that people can afford their mortgages. Uh, so we're seeing a very different. I, I guess it's a different, very different climate back then. Um, but over the 12 years, we've helped, I dare say, thousands of first-home buyers. We've you know, looked after a lot of them throughout the years. And uh, we I have a team of about uh, eight brokers currently. And every day, we're helping first-home buyers achieve their dreams. It's interesting that you say things have changed and obviously the lending environment because, of course, both Megan and I have been in property now for over 20 years. And you're absolutely right. It causes me to remember that's right. Back then, um, it, it was a lot easier to get oh, money. Giving it away. Yeah. yeah, and then we had, of course, a Royal Commission and all that sort of um, stuff that happened around 2015-16. Um, and so, yeah, it is a different environment now. And, of course, now we've got rising interest rates as well. And as that happens, then that diminishes people's borrowing capacity. Um, 
So let's let's kick off. Before we sort of get into some of the nuts and bolts of when you're ready, what you need to know, all that sort of stuff, tell us some of the biggest mistakes that you see first home buyers making. Yeah, I think probably the very first, I guess, mistake that they make is not talking to somebody sooner. So that <laughs> is probably the biggest thing that people do. They think, I need to save up this amount of money. I need to get to this level you know, uh, capacity. I need to achieve certain things, you know, and sure, they might be personal goals that you want to achieve that before you want to go buy a house. Um, but I think regardless of your personal goals, you need to speak to a professional to find out exactly what you're doing. So whether you're actually saving towards getting a deposit to then reach a certain price tag, you know, you might be trying to achieve or buy a property that's 1.2 million, for instance, because you've been looking at the market. Um, but a lot of people don't realize they might've been able to buy it yesterday. They've already got the 50 grand buff- buffer in place. They've already ticked all of their goals, but they just never spoke to anyone, so they didn't know which direction to head. Is it possible they uh, could have even spoken to the wrong person in that process and got the wrong advice? Because there's so much free information on the internet, isn't there? Absolutely. So uh, uh, an example, a customer which I met uh, years ago, they, you know, their parents were up and willing to give them a guarantee to buy their first property. Uh, they earned plenty of money. They spent plenty of money, but you know, you can adjust from Wagyu beef Back to, you know, a sure can. <laughs> three plus marble, you know, tuna. <laughs> you can get a the tuna. famous case, the Wagyu and Shiraz case where, That's uh, correct. Yeah, where you can pretty quickly cut back on your spending. Yes. You can. Yeah. So I've had, I've had clients who reached out to me, you know, much further down the track and, you know, had they bought the property when they thought they couldn't buy it, you know, there were probably half a million dollars difference between the price that they paid years later versus speaking to me you know obviously four years down the track when they've saved up the deposit and i realized what happened was they walked into their bank and their bank said no well, look if your parents want to give a guarantee we can't give it to you it doesn't exist um, but there are lenders out there you know off the top of my head there's two lenders straight away and two major banks that will give you a guarantee um, and let you borrow up to 100 percent plus mm-hmm. all borrowing costs on the property as long as you've got the income to service and when we did, did the calculations, the amount of rent they paid was equivalent to the amount of repayments anyway. So they're not paying someone else's mortgage for many, many years. Just goes to show, if you ask the wrong people, even the right question to the wrong people, you, it can really put you back a, a really long way. There's also, you know, we're talking about um, talking to a broker early enough, but there's also a time where it's too late. You, you know, you've, you've, you've missed your opportunity and you're in a you're potentially in a bog or or a lot of trouble, and that is if you've bid at an auction before talking to a broker or a bank and securing your finance. There's not a lot that you can do if you've if you've sub- committed yourself in that situation. Yeah, in that in that situation, I I'm like I've seen it too many times where we've, we've had to do rescue projects on people. You know, we've done one last week actually, and they were notice to complete with three days left, and we managed oh, to wow. flip the deal from notice to complete to settled within two days. Um, and for us, well it wasn't even, wow, it wasn't that even is a rescue package. <laughs> it wasn't even about the income. We just like, it was a friend of a friend, one of our, you know, long-term clients and they're like, please, can you help these people out? You know, and we just, we looked at it and not anyone wants to take that on, right? It's, yeah. it's stress for everyone involved and, uh, we, we could see it working. We could help them. So how could we say no to it? But, um, yeah, not getting a pre-approval. How know. did it get to that point though? Can you tell us what's the background? How the hell did yeah. they get? And also, what were they doing that they let it get so late in the process? So I think it 
from what I've been told in this story was they went to a mortgage broker who, you know, didn't really know what they were doing. They messed up the whole deal, got a decline, tried to move it to another lender, but didn't really understand, you know, the parts that the bank found attractive about the customer. So basically the broker put it to two different lenders that wouldn't suit this customer, you know. They were never going to approve these deals. They had policies it, that didn't suit the customer's situation? Correct. Yeah. So um, like to, I guess, on a high level, one customer was, you know, receiving, I guess it's overtime in their pay. And when I, we put it into the calculator, it didn't pass with it because they were shading the overtime dramatically, right? They are comparing the overtime to the previous year and then they are taking the lower of the overtime plus base income versus the previous year's income. So that was always going to be a fail. So for instance, in 2022, their total income was 80,000. But this year, in total, over the last six months, they've already earned equivalent when you annualize it to 120,000, which was the difference between the servicing ratio, mm. which the bank was going to approve or not approve. And banks can look at that differently is, is I guess, where you're, you're heading towards, isn't it? Because uh, it's not like you're manipulating what you're presenting. You just know that some banks will look at overtime using 12 months historical and some banks will amortize going forward. We can present the exact same data to two different banks and you could come up with a borrowing capacity of a million dollars or 600 grand you know, <laughs> very, very quickly. It, it's just, it depends. If you're a straightforward customer, you know, you've got husband and wife, we make 80 grand, we get no overtime, we get no bonuses, you know, we're going to sh- equity share plans or nothing. Yeah. Very straightforward. It's a nice pretty much, and easy. Yeah. yeah, vanilla all across the board. Every lender is pretty similar, right? Uh, once you start throwing overtime, you start throwing bonuses, you start throwing commissions, you know, you start looking at people like nurses, doctors, you know, there's so many different policies for them out there. Self-employed is the biggest one. So when you're self-employed, a lot of people who are self-employed make the mistake of going to their first lender. Yeah. Uh, and I could tell you their policies are like chalk and cheese. There's not one policy for self-employed. And a prime example of that is lenders considering JobKeeper, JobSaver, anything COVID related, um, there's a lot of lenders out there who won't even touch it, whereas some lenders will take all of that income and produce, look at it as a total gross because that was a supplementary income. Is It was just there to supplement the income for that year, provided that this year they're earning that same level of income and we can show it through internal financials or BAS statements or anything like that, we can actually produce a result for them. It makes sense, you know? This is fascinating because I think, like you said, a lot of people obviously would make the assumption that, oh, well, you know, I know a lot of first home buyers, for instance, who might run their own businesses who yeah. say, oh, well, the bank's not going to give me any money because they don't like, you know, small business and I have to have two years financials and all this sort of stuff, right? And so there's a lot of assumptions around that, which which are obviously based in, to some degree in reality. But what you're saying is if you go to a broker who's not just you're one of the mill broker, but someone who's experienced in looking at these um, more unusual circumstances, that you will know immediately which banks to go to, and and also how to you got to package up that client as a as a you almost got to sell them to the bank, don't you? You got to position them as a good as a good prospect. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. So look, there's two layers of lending, I guess. Really, the the main layer is that there's policy, black and white. And then there's obviously presenting the customer as a whole, right? And, you know, good character, that their income, we're not just trying to, you know, put a wool over their eyes and say, hey, look, they were earning this much. Now they're, you know, they're earning X amount. Uh, you want to present the customer through policy first. 
So every bank has a different policy. So mm-hmm. a quick example is, you know, one funder takes one year's financials and they take uh, any ABN that's at least 18 months old. Whereas the standard or traditional ways, we take an average of two years and your ABN must be at least two years old. You know, I've even got funders who will look at a deal if they're recently self-employed, as long as they're, they're in the same industry type, they've moved over, they'll consider the past tax returns and they can make sense of it all, right? Yeah. That you're now earning the same or if not higher income, you've got some sort of acumen around accounting so you can understand you know, profit and loss taxation, you're up to date with your taxes and now you're actually earning more money than you were before. It was just a general gist, right? Um, so yeah, it, there's so many different angles you can approach on it with a self-employed customer. If a broker doesn't actually understand, which I've met a lot of brokers in my career, and I could tell you like eight out of 10 of them that I meet, they don't understand self-employed. They don't actually can't read a set of tax returns. If I asked them some queries in a tax return, they wouldn't even be able to answer the question. They just go, we just slap it in and we just hope for the best. You know, so you go, oh, you know. And and um, as as people move towards non-traditional work arrangements, so there is a proliferation of um, people who are doing more bits and pieces. You know, we used to call it entrepreneurial um, in our generation. Gig economy. But the gig economy, you're doing bits and pieces. You're not necessarily in a PAYG um, full-time position with a nice clean tax return at the end of the year. Um, there's income coming from all sorts of different sources. And what you're you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that if you bring all of those different sort of elements to a bank, they might just look at it and go, oh, too hard, not not us. We, it doesn't fit within our box. If you go to the wrong broker and they don't understand how to put that together and, and present it within the bank's policies, whichever financier you're looking for, then they might miss that opportunity of being able to buy. And as you say, buy, able to buy sooner rather than waiting until they have a nice clean tax return. So so it's even more important now, isn't it, to have a broker who can understand how that kind of income it can be used in the assessment. Yeah, 100%. Also the prep work leading in. So for instance, we're about to go into the end of the new financial year, which will be June 30 this year. Um, and you know, knowing that all the accounts are up to date, they're getting the invoicing in, at, in, in on time, knowing that they're about to buy, they're getting a true reflection of what they're earning. Uh, it's really important, you know, that prep work, even talking to the broker. I've, I've done deals with guys which I've met years ago, you know, and it's taken them that many years to get in order, but they know what their goals are. We've set the agenda early. We know that this is what we've got to achieve in the business to reach the goals of purchasing, you know, a house at $2 million or whatever it is, you know. Um, but at least early in the conversation, they can set their goals. They know what they need to do in the, in the business as well. And there's they a, there's in, a big yeah. nugget of gold I just want to pull out there. Sorry to jump in, but I don't no, really want right. to focus on that. And that is um, don't wait until you've got your tax return. Actually talk to a broker well in advance of that so that you're you're doing some planning and you've got some of that evidence. You've got your invoices in. You've got your payments received um, because all of that can help with that preparation and, and the information that a bank might need to assess you. That's That's an awfully great piece of advice there. Yeah. So I was just going to ask something else there too, because obviously if you're like a vanilla uh, customer, as you said, yeah. someone is just PAYG and, and it's 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 sort of, there's nothing, no bells and whistles, nothing strange about that. <laughs> and you probably don't need to be as fussy with your choice of broker. Although I would encourage everyone to go for the two out of the 10 rather than the eight out of the 10 anyway. But 
Obviously, if you do have other sources of income or if you've got parents going guarantor, anything that makes the deal a little bit more complicated, then how does somebody work out whether that broker that they're talking to ha- is capable of, of pulling all this together for them? Because it's a bit the same as with buyer's agents. There's a lot of really crap buyer's agents out there. There's some really excellent ones. And, and the, the consumer doesn't necessarily know how to tell the difference because they don't know enough to be able to tell the difference. And I guess it's the same in the mortgage broking space. So what are some tips that you could, you know, you could share with us to help our listeners? Yeah, it's, it's really, uh, it's a, when I say it's a hard thing to work that out based on meeting them and talking to them because, you know, everyone's a salesman or saleswoman, yeah. you know, so it's, it's really hard, right? And the, the actual marketing side of their business isn't what you should be looking at, obviously. <laughs> when you see the shiny bells and whistles yeah. when you're talking to them. Um, I guess from what I what I feel anyway is that maybe asking about their experience, you know, um, how long they've been doing it. I could guarantee, even if they've only been a mortgage broker recently, had they been in the bank prior to that, had they been working you know, years nah. before that? Because I could tell you when I started mortgage broking, oh, shit. Are <laughs> 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 oh, there's an honest self-assessment? <laughs> yeah. I've done two years and I was probably – you know, I absolutely struggled at getting deals across the line because I didn't know what I was doing, right? Mm-hmm. In the first couple of years. That experience is vital and they're always key. If they don't have the experience, then they're part of a larger team that has that experience, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're either being coached or mentored by the right people. Um, so you got to look a bit deep into it, you know, when you ask some of those questions. Maybe, hey, oh, you know, how long have you been doing this? You know, who, who you're working with? And then, you know, from their website, you'll be able to see who's in the team. Um, things very basic things like that. I know it doesn't sound too complex, but I think that experience is is key. Um, with self-employed customers, especially, uh, most brokers don't actually have accounting knowledge. Um, know myself and pretty much most of my team have accounting degrees. So you know, like we we kind of pick up people from a, a different kind of fa- different space. We think that that accounting knowledge is really important. Uh, really understanding, you know, how. The whole system works or the whole ecosystem of money works is really important um yeah so those key points i think are you know really vital in selecting your broker that's a good point actually quite often some of the brokers that we work with in our business and we work with Hong actually um but they've actually had financial planning backgrounds and and certainly with the changes in legislation around financial planning a lot of people decided you know what i'm just gonna they might have been doing both before and quite a lot of them decided, look, I'm just going to focus on being a mortgage broker. But the fact that they've had that background means that they do see things more holistically yeah. than somebody who's and, – and I agree with you too, like people coming through the banking system and some of the the ones that I've worked with for many, many years have come through the banking pathway. It's that experience thing. It's like you, know, you can have one year – you can have 20 years experience, but it's, it's the same year every year. You know, like people never seem to learn. There's no cumulative learning. And yeah. then there's that – 20 years cumulative experience or 10 years cumulative experience as opposed to just 10 times one year, you know? So I think um, asking some of these questions that you're talking about, about, well, what are the some of the more complicated deals that you've got across the line? Where, where have been some of the more challenging customers that you've had? Because that was sort of tease out whether that experience is cumulative. Like, you know, you don't want to still be crap after 10 years, but I'm sure there's some um, mortgage brokers that still are, you know, yeah, length of time doesn't yeah. necessarily define benefits and, and good. And I think, Veronica, further to that is probably even um, asking, have you had anyone in a situation that was similar to me 
and what were some of the challenges Mm. they faced and how did you deal with those challenges? Because if you're constantly dealing with um, the larger end of town and and, uh, as a first home buyer, you're trying to talk to a broker who is just not used to people like you, then they might not have the time, energy or interest in getting you across the line with a broker if it's a little bit difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That that key piece about the time, it's, it's very important. So there are some big brokerages out there and there's some guys who really just, are, they're a churn and burn model, for instance. They're yeah. in, out there, they're getting their leads, whether it's real estate agents, wherever it is, they're just producing these mass leads, right? And then their call centers are calling and then producing them yeah. through it and they've yeah. only got half an hour for you. Is that what you're really looking for in a broker? You've got to ask yourself that. You know, everyone's got a different business model. Our personal model is all about relationships, so it's not the same as some of these bigger volume riders. Um, we do do good volume to get strong, but we've also got a big engine room to support that. So, really important piece of the puzzle. It is actually. I mean, it, that it's like with anything. There's a, there's these brag metrics, isn't aren't there? Mm. And you know, and oh, I'm I, I'm number one in this or do that or whatever. I've sold the <laughs> most amount of properties or bought the most amount of properties or, you know, my loan book's bigger because, than everybody else's. But it's it's like, well, yeah. And does that mean you're churn and burn, or does that mean that actually you're that good that you've <laughs> had to then build up this team support team? You know, because. You've got so much business coming to you, so it, it does call for a bit more interrogation there. I think one of the things that we've feedback we've had from quite a few of our students in the program is that, you know, they've had to go through numerous brokers before they found a good one, and and I think you know you saying probably eight out of ten don't necessarily know this stuff, um, sort of point so supports that and. What's happens often is that, you know, that's time wasted in many cases because Perfect. by the time they get to somebody who actually can advise them, rather than somebody who says, well, you're not ready, and so therefore I'm not going to give you any information or any help, you know. And so that, yeah. that's been feedback that we've had quite a lot. And, and our what we want to encourage is people go to the broker that's prepared to talk to them before they're technically ready. And I say technically ready because, like you said, sometimes people are ready and they don't even realise it. Yeah. So. How do, I mean, what are the, some of the things that, you know, somebody who's not actually ready? I mean, when is it too early to find a broker? Yeah, that's that's a pretty good question, actually. Like, too early is potentially, you know, you're you're living week to week, you're drowning in your own debt, or you're not, you know, you're not in, <laughs> <Right. laughs> you're not in a position, right? Like, you just, you know, you know, mentally, you're not, you haven't created any buffers, you haven't, you know... You're, you're just living week to week. You're not actually, I guess, progressing your life, right? Yeah. Uh, I think you've got to- th- You're still on the Merlot and the Wagyu. <laughs> yeah, and you can't get off it, you know? <laughs> so you, you've got to obviously take those steps in your life to then prioritize, this is what I want to do. You know, I think it's that mindset piece, getting your yourself, I guess, mentally ready to go, hey, I'm willing to make some sacrifices in my life mm. and I'm willing to take that next step. So, you know, when you're in a comf- more, much more comfortable position where you've eliminated any bad debt, out of your life and now you're in a savings pattern you know whether it's you've, your goal was to get to 10,000 20,000 100,000 whatever it is your, your bad debt's eliminated I think just eliminate that bad debt getting to our savings having surplus income each month it's just really important you know obviously when you're measuring your repayments on a mortgage it's got to be a lot more aggressive than your rent nowadays with high interest rates yeah, um, so you got to have to factor that into your equation right so you know you might be saving $500 a month but technically you're going to actually need to save one thousand five hundred a month because a property worth a million dollars, the repayment's going to cost you that much more each month, and that's not to factor in any more rising interest rates, mm-hmm. right? 
So then talking to a broker, even at that point, it's probably worth talking just to say, hey, what's the repayments going to look like? Um, you know, how much do I need to save a month? And a good broker will be able to guide you to say, hey, look, if you, you know, you live in, you know, say in the, in the West and you want to get to a two-bedroom apartment, uh, you're only being paid to, so that's going to be one mil, whatever it is, you know, you need to save this much. Your repayment's going to be this much, so you know exactly kind of how much bad debt you need to eliminate, how much you need to be able to uh, prove to yourself that you're saving each month uh, before you can take that leap, so... We we call it getting financially fit, and and we talk it in your fir- talk about it in your first home buyer guide, the course uh, about this lead up work, and and it's all of those things that you've just just spoken about. It's all of the pre things that you need to do to to make things look good, and to have some good habits, and and to to have things ready to be ready uh, to talk to a mortgage broker. So I think that that's really good advice. Is is Getting yourself clean from a debt point of view, from a, looking at your your interest, uh, your um credit cards, and, and potentially reducing those limits because a lot of people don't know that that's what the bank looks at. You might pay it off every month, but if it's a twenty thousand dollar card, then there's potentially hundred thousand dollars in borrowing capacity that you've eliminated. There's probably another topic I might throw in there. Some people don't talk about this much, but some people, you know, in the younger years, they go traveling and things like that, and they end up with bad credit. So they might have defaulted on the credit card, went overseas for six months, mm-hmm. and you know they're in payment arrangements and stuff like that. Um, there's a solution for that in a sense that um, some people might have been put at the debt collectors already, and it's really hard to get a first mortgage after that because you know you've got bad credit history. There are companies out there, credit repair agencies. Um, I don't know if you've ever brushed on this side, but they can actually help you remove the defaults if you have a default. Um, you know, I think I've, I've got a live example. I've had many of them, probably about maybe 20 cases I could present, which were guys that who had like a credit card default, for instance, thinking they're doomed. They're never going to get a first home um, until they pay that off and then that forever stays in their file or well, not forever seven more years will be on their file right towards yeah. removed. but they're always stuck with these shitty lenders or crappy sorry crappy lenders yeah. and they're stuck with these crappy lenders and they can't get to a major bank or something like that who's going to give them a much lower rate of interest um, but that's not the truth there's uh, credit repair agencies because the people who loaded the default on you originally if they didn't follow the, the actual legal requirements to load that default that default must be removed so yeah. you pay out your debt you contact this agency, or you better to contact the agency first because they will guide you on how to pay out the debt, negotiate the debt, and then get it removed. So I've had it many cases where they've I've, I was able to remove this within 30 days using <laughs> one of these agencies, and then I bought them a house. Um, my own brother was a live case, you know, so you know, I've done done stuff like that for people and managed to buy a house and make half a million dollars in equity, which they never thought they could achieve. And certainly you're not suggesting that people should um, mismanage their credit card debt Absolutely not. and, and Absolutely have it removed not. easily. It's not easy. It's no. not uh, It's not recommended. But um, talking to someone like you who knows these things could be helpful if you have found yourself in that situation. I think what's important there too, sometimes in relationships they go bust and you somehow find yourself that you're, you're stuck with uh, an yeah. overhang of the fact you were with someone who was not very good at, at yeah. managing money and that Often in couples, there's a spender and a saver, so they, they <laughs> it sort of leads into problems anyway. But that's a topic for another episode. Um, <laughs> but what you're saying, Hong, is that you know, if you're sort of a bit young and irresponsible, and and you live it up for a bit, and then you sort of a few years down the track, you're in a stable um, employment, you're actually getting ahead, you're budgeting, you're, you're 
saving, you paid the debt off, um, but you've still got this sort of black mark against your name. And it comes back to what you're saying is at what point should you go and get a, a broker involved is when you've started to get those disciplines and those good practices in place. And you go, right, and well, I am a person that can save the money and then pay a mortgage. Um, and so therefore I can prove that I'm, I have the capability to do that. So now's the time to get some advice. And I think that that's a and great, interesting aspect to that. Are there other things that you see first home buyers doing or assumptions that they make that they potentially could do things differently if only they got some advice earlier? Oh, absolutely. Um, probably leading into the buyer's agency side on that a bit more was they always, what a lot of first home buyers do is they they listen to their friends or their peers or people around them about what a good investment is or what a good property is and you know, hey, my friend said, let's buy this unit in a block of 5,000 units, which <laughs> has this beautiful swimming pool that has an infinity pool at the roof. Like, you see things like that, and they're just listening to their peers rather than listening to people who've done it, had the experience. You know, uh, I think even myself personally, when I was buying my first property, um, there was so much smoky mirrors, just people giving me information everywhere. And every second place you go look at that's going to fit your budget, you get different, I guess, opinions from the real estate agent, from the guy trying to flog your apartment, the guy trying to flog you something else. You know, there's somebody flogging you something. You know, so, you know, get unbiased opinions. Look for somebody who's actually done it or look for the professional who's done it or professional health people every day to achieve their goals and do these things in the right way. Um, you know, that's that's something, you know, I wish I had myself personally my first few transactions. I did make some poor decisions early on, made some yeah. good decisions later. Um, you live and you learn, right? But I wish I could skip that part of making the bad decisions very early. Um, you know, I listened to anyone and everyone back then. Um, but now I kind of, what? how do you put it? The proof is in the pudding. Always. Mm. You know, so I kind of take that. Um, or I look at people who've, who've achieved it themselves and seek their kind of guidance. Even if it's just too, too liner that kind of changes your mind or makes you think a bit more, I guess, about the selection of property. Um, it, you know, it's a game changer. Yeah. Uh, Megan and I have both spoken on the podcast about our first purchases and how we <laughs> made mistakes too. So, um, before we, you know, before we're in the property industry, before we learn what we learn now. And it's actually interesting. I, I've recently had a bit of a, a stoush online with somebody who's, uh, very much targeting that maybe not the first home buyer segment, but certainly the first investor segment of the market and, and, you know, I got quite a following, but the problem is, and it's what I've really kept saying, where's the proof, where's the yeah. evidence and how long have you been, you know, doing this for and how long, uh, you know, what like, length of time have you got to, to show this evidence and what benchmarks are you using? And it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm not a boomer. I'm not a baby yeah. boomer. So I haven't had long enough yet, but do you just watch it? will be fine sort of attitude. It's like, no. You know, look for somebody who's done it before, but somebody who's done it before at least 10 years ago, you know, yeah. and so that you can go, okay, what they did, did work as opposed to, you know, two minutes ago and we don't know if it's going to work yet. The fact that they bought a property is not enough. Or is it actual sold um, sold yeah. evidence? And, yeah. and that's a big one. I, I know the one that you're talking about, Veronica, and, and a lot of that is on paper evidence and it's very good to have that on paper um, or, or valuation, if you like, um, but that's not what someone's prepared to pay. And you can sit on a valuation that might be you know, you're thinking in your own head. Well, I had that valued two years ago. Well, it's a very different market now. 
And whilst some properties might have gone up, some might have gone down, and it might be yours that's actually gone down until that property sells, you don't know what that's actually worth. Um, so that that cyclic nature, cyclical nature of working with someone who's had that length of experience and has has the evidence to show it. But I think the other thing, Veronica, you, you touched on it, and that's benchmarking. And and um, I know of organisations who espouse that you know they've outperformed the market by X percent. But when you really drill down on it, they're comparing against the market within the suburb that they're talking about. And if you pull that apart. It's because they're new properties versus this very old uh, established properties that they're benchmarking against. So it's a fabulous looking statistic, but it's clearly the wrong benchmark and it's the opportunity cost of what you could have done with your money if you put it in a different place in a better asset um, that really is the cost of, of that, not not what you've made. So that's why I love when Hall says he's made yep. mistakes because we yeah. learn from mistakes, particularly when it's our own money. And, and when you see the difference of what could have happened versus what did happen and you know it yourself, then you are more likely to actually be able to help someone. But when you're still in that early phase of early successes that have never been tested, you know, then then you haven't actually learned any hard lessons. And they're all <laughs> you ahead haven't been of you. whacked around the head yet. They're all ahead of you, those hard <laughs> lessons. So you want someone who's had some hard lessons. Haven't been bashed around yet. <laughs> Got to learn how to get back up and get on with it and learn from it. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, because of course my podcast co-host on The Elephant in the Room, he's a mortgage broker. And one of the things that Chris often says is that they spend time in their business unraveling uh, bad decisions that people have often made. Uh-huh in the years before. And this is what, you know, your first home buy got us all about. We don't want you making those poor decisions that you got to un- get unraveled at some future point. So this this is why we want Hull on today to talk about, you know, why it's important to get some of this financial advice, someone on the team and test those brokers out. So another reason why it's important to start getting a broker on board early is because if you start having conversations and think, I don't think this is the right person for me. You've got more time to go and find another one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, even the second opinion thing sometimes I find is really valuable. Um, you know, they'll, you sometimes you get presented an option or a few options, obviously, for one mortgage broker, uh, but there might be better options out there, you know. So mm-hmm. getting a second opinion, uh, uh, it doesn't take long, but be obviously transparent that, you, you know, you've already talked to someone. So you're not wasting too much of their time as well, right? And to say, hey, look, yep. I'm ready. Speaking to someone, I've got a pre-approval. This is kind of what they're presenting. I just want to do a quick proof check. It yeah. doesn't take another mortgage broker more than, it shouldn't take more than 10 minutes to kind of just have a look at it and go, based on what you're telling me, it sounds pretty good, you know? Mm. So that, that's something always worth maybe just having a quick two-minute check as well, you know? Is there ever a reason where a buyer might be better off going directly to the bank rather than to a broker? Um, yeah, so I, the answer to that, is probably in the case where, um, oh, it's a hard question. <laughs> in, the, in the in the case where the turnaround times, so so if you're in an urgent transaction, um, so so you've left it too late. Yeah, you left it too late, and you need something done urgently. So the I know there's not meant to be any channel conflict, but the the bankers are allowed to do deals pretty quickly at the yeah. same pace as mortgage brokers who are on a premium program with, with the banks. So right. So to give you an example, our business, we're, we're at the top level for pretty much all of the funders that are out there. So 
some banks give us a guaranteed turnaround within 24 hours. Whereas if you're, if you're a broker who doesn't do substantial volume, yeah. you'll be waiting in the queue for anything up to 17 days. Yeah. So you're waiting 17 days before they even look at your file, let alone rework. So some people have a bad experience because they're, Submitted the deal, and like, where's our file? Or the broker mm-hmm. say, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. We're mm-hmm. 17 days in. Stuck in the bank. And then they didn't present the file correctly. They're missing a document that goes back in another queue for another five or six working days. So that's where you can have some major problems. But um, yeah, that's... And isn't the broker, don't you have sort of a duty of care to a, a client that a bank doesn't have the same threshold? Is, is that something that's a thing? Well, I, I think... Uh, when you mean threshold, you mean uh, this is about turnaround times, but yeah. No, no, it's more about your duty of care in terms of the advice you give um, a client. Is it? Is it that you? There's there's higher standards that brokers have to have to um, adhere to. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So when you're, I, I actually worked at a bank for two years. So when we were in the bank, um, our requirements to lend money was a simple course produced by them, and you know our compliance was based on what the bank was auditing internally. Um, and then externally, obviously, had the, had the government coming and audit thing as well. Uh, but what we have to do as brokers, we have to continually up, uh, we have to continually educate ourselves. We have to get CPD points constantly. Um, we always have to look at you know what's happening in the marketplace. We also are looking at multiple lenders, which allows us to have a wide view rather than just a singular view. Interesting. So there's been an awful lot here that you've shared with us that first-time buyers can really take on board right from the the getting financially fit through to how to interview a mortgage broker, what sorts of things they need to have in mind, that it's, you, you know, you can't be too early. Sometimes having those conversations before you think you're ready to be ready could help you actually get financially fit and, and that could be a, an absolute game changer in terms of how quickly you can purchase which of course in in a, in a moving market could be the difference between a couple of hundred thousand dollars in a, in a rapidly rising market. Um, what, uh, tell us, I'm, I'm really interested, and this is a question that we ask all of our guests, what is the one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you were a first-time buyer? Yeah, um, I think the thing, I, it's a very simple line, I think, is um, somebody once said to me, here, yeah, property is... It's all about supply and demand. Yeah. You know, so when you're looking at a property, it's, you know, how many people are, you know, wanting to buy that property versus how many people are obviously, you know, not looking at that property. But the basic supply and demand curve was, you know, something that I didn't really think about as a first home buyer. Uh, whether that property is going to be your stepping stone to get to your house, you really need to understand that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if you're going to be buying in a block of 40 versus a block of four, versus <laughs> a block of six, or whatever it is, um, I wish I understood that as, wife, as a first home buyer. Uh, and it was, it didn't, it sounds so simple. I know uh, it sounds simple, but no. when, when I was looking at You don't know what you don't property, know. Yeah, I was just looking at everything that suited yeah, my uh, needs. And really, uh, that first property for me was a stepping stone to get into my house, right? Well, but had I selected the wrong property, I'd be in big trouble, right? I bought in a property that never grew over the last seven or eight years. Yeah. Um, and I needed that as a stepping stone. And if anything went negative in equity or sat, sat flat versus growing, yeah. I wouldn't be able to use that. I'm literally trying to save again and I'm paying rent to myself in order to then upgrade to my house. So that's probably my, my biggest thing for sure. 
It's a brilliant lesson and, and it taps into a whole bunch of things that we teach actually in the program and yeah. we talk about on the podcast all the time, which is about the quality of the asset. So yeah. what you're saying effectively is supply and demand for the individual asset means that if there's it's scarce because it's a good asset and there's not lots of them around, then and buyers, that's in demand with buyers, you've got high demand, low supply. Yeah. That's actually the secret of capital growth choosing the assets in any particular suburb that offer that mix. And so, and likewise, that with the stepping stone strategy, we've, we've got a tutorial on that. It's all about that, making sure that first property is, it works for you, actually leverages you up the ladder as opposed to being, you know, making you get stuck on the bottom rung forever. So it's a great lesson there. Such a, such a vital step. I've watched, um, yeah, the biggest one I've seen is a client who approached me, yeah, yeah been about three or four years ago now um and they were looking at buying an apartment in wentworth point i think it is i don't know if you guys know where wentworth point is in sydney yeah. um but it's just a glut of apartments it's just yep. literally they're looking to live there because their clo- work was in rows close by Perfect. and i asked them why do you live why do you, why do you want to buy there they go oh because we, we want to own a property we don't want to pay for a mortgage is what they said to me you know so from from that i go well the rent there is only like six hundred a week, and your mortgage is going to be a thousand a week. Uh, why do you want to buy there? Uh, they go, well, we want to own the property that we live in, and we want to upgrade and eventually buy a house. You know, didn't make any sense to me. You know, so I've watched them from four years ago end up buying a much better asset. Um, they've probably made about seven or eight hundred grand in growth on that property. And guess what? That property they would have bought at Wentworth Point is probably worth a hundred grand less than what they would have paid yes. for it back then. You know, and I'm about to do a deal for them to get to their family home now. So, you know, seeing stuff like that is just amazing. Right. It uh, it certainly aligns with that. Um, our Home Buyer Academy uh, principle, Home Buying Principle Number Four, which is if it's easy to buy, it's probably going to be difficult to sell. And and that really does wrap up what you've talked about in terms of sl- supply and demand and scarcity and so forth. So. Mm-hmm. Great lesson there for everybody. Thank you, Hall. I really appreciate your time and uh, good luck with everything as in within your business. And uh, we look forward to to talking to you again sometime. I think this has been some great lessons here for our for our listeners. Uh, thanks, Roka. Thanks, thanks, thanks for coming on. on it. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.